0: Can you recall a book that inspired you to become a writer? What about a book that fundamentally changed your view of the world or yourself? In this episode, you'll enjoy a combination of banter and insight into writing techniques as two good friends discuss the books that taught them how to recognize that people and stories have layers, what it means to show and not tell, and how people can read the same book but have completely different experiences. Welcome to Parents Who Write, the podcast that helps parents pursue their writing dreams. I'm your host, Erin P.T. Canning. I'm a mom of two young boys, a writer, editor, and writing coach. My mission is to help you regularly make time for your writing, find your voice again, and confidently share your stories so that you can own your identity as a writer and be a happier, more patient parent. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Parents You Write. And today I have with me my dear friend Maria Secoy, who is a three-time author. She just released her third fictional
1: book today. So congratulations. Thank you. Standing by Stephanie is live now. Uh, you can get signed copies on my website, or it, of course, is available on Amazon and Kindle Unlimited.
0: I loved that book. I am so proud of you, my friend. So we are here today to talk about books we love and books we hate, which is comical because when I told Maria that I wanted to do an episode of just she and I talking about books, uh, you, you kind of had a panic attack.
1: Oh, it was full blown meltdown. I believe it was a solid 20 minutes of me pulling books off the shelves from behind me going, but what about this one? But what about this one? Uh-huh. Because I love, I love all the books. If I could be Scrooge McDuck instead of like a room full of coins that I rolled around in and dove into, it would be a room full of books and I would just swim through the books swim through the
0: books. I love that visual so
1: much.
0: On that note, do you want to go first? And do you want to pick your book that you love or your book that you hate? And why? That's the other important part of this. I really think it's important to look at books that resonate with us and don't resonate with us because they teach us a lot about our writing. Any thoughts to add to that perspective, Maria?
1: Okay, back up. I am an avid reader. I am one of those what we call whale readers who frequently consumes five to seven books per week. I was that kid who was constantly having their book taken away in school for reading at inappropriate times. (laughs) I love it. That means when you ask me to pick a book that I love or a book that I hate, my brain immediately starts sifting through a catalog We're talking a solid 20 years of at least 50 books a year. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, Uh it's a lot of books. And so for me to narrow that down feels overwhelming and impossible.
0: But, But you still didn't answer my first question.
1: I know, I'm going there. Okay. I have many, many different sets of criteria that I use to evaluate books. Mm. For tonight, I am going to stick with the criteria of books that changed who I am as a person. Ooh! Not just books that I loved, not just books that resonated with me, not books that I enjoyed the language of, but books that fundamentally shifted the core of who I am and who I have come to be, what I do with my life, how I view the world. So major impact on my life that has created a ripple effect, that has changed my career, that has changed my opinion on things, that has changed the way I relate to people, the friendships I create, the mentor-mentee relationships that I have. So the two books that I, I want to talk about tonight, I'm not going to dive into the core language of them. Whoa. Because in both cases, they are less about the language and more about the way they hit me in the core soul of my being.
0: Wow, you went heavy. I went pure entertainment, but okay.
1: <laughs> well, i it's <laughs> funny because I know what your favorite book is, and it's the one that I'm going to choose to talk about tonight that I hate.
0: <laughs> you know what? You mentioned a book that you love, and it's one of the books that I absolutely loathe. So it's okay. I love the look on your face. All right. Um, all right. Yep.
1: You want me to jump into my first book? Go into your first one. Okay, so I want to start with the book that I love. Okay. Because I love Fat Kid Rules the World by K.L. Going. Ooh. She is not a prolific author. In fact, I believe she has only released a few books. And this particular one came out in 2003. Oh. So this came out 20 years ago. And I don't think she's done a whole lot since then. However, she is of our generation. She is a huge Nirvana fan. Mm -hmm. The main character in this book is loosely based on Kurt Cobain. Okay. And and there's an excerpt that I have to share because there is a piece that I'll explain how this changed my life. But first, I have to share this one little excerpt. It is a young adult novel. So we have two boys. We have Troy, who is fat and a mess and incredibly self-conscious and socially inept on a good day. And then we have Kurt, who is homeless, destitute, drug-addicted, pill-popping, hot mess in a whole different way. But he's also a rock star, specifically a punk rock star. Mm-hmm. And the two of them are at this diner. And Kurt is trying to get Troy to play the drums for his band. And Troy is like, but I don't know how to play the drums. <laughs> and Kurt says, that doesn't matter. You are punk rock. Ooh. Ooh. And Troy is like, but I don't know how to play the drums. So they're sitting in this diner and Kurt is trying to explain to Troy how he is the essence of what it means to be punk rock. Okay, I'm going to kind of set the scene for you and then I'll go into the very specific example. So Kurt tells Troy to watch this couple. And Troy is like, they're two beautiful people. She's sexy. He's attractive. And Kurt shakes his head. You're not watching them, he says. You're watching you. If you were watching them, you'd see it. He takes out a handful of pills and lines them up behind his napkin. There are red, yellow, green, and blue ones, a regular rainbow of pharmaceuticals. He catches me staring at him and makes an exasperated head motion toward the couple. Their food arrived 15 minutes ago, but they're not nearly done eating. I wish they'd hurry up. The woman only has an omelette with some kind of vegetable in it, and the man ordered the pasta. They're talking a lot, and they both eat slow and sexy, like people on television. The woman sits on a bar stool with her legs crossed and takes one bite every two minutes. She chews carefully, as if she doesn't want anyone to see her swallow. The man does the same thing, only worse. He stops altogether for long periods of time and says things that make the woman tilt her head back and laugh. I roll my eyes. They're both super skinny, so in my opinion, they should just eat and be done with it. What the hell do they have to worry about? They're pretty dull to watch. All they do is take turns tossing their heads back ceremoniously. Kurt nods and takes a bottle of Nyquil from a fold inside his shirt. He drinks about a third of it, and I glance over at him. Is that such a good, are you watching? Kurt interrupts. You're not going to see anything if you don't watch. Watch how they eat think how you feel when you eat like that well that's easy i think i don't ever eat like that except when i'm in public and i'm nervous about people watching me like when we went to dad's retirement dinner i pause the woman pushes the remains of her omelet around on her plate and the man takes a forkful of pasta i've watched them take a hundred bites already but this time i notice the way the woman glances at the clock at her reflection in the window at the door i notice the fact that the man still has his jacket tied even though they've been sitting there for half an hour. I notice the small run starting just above the heel of the woman's shoe. I look at Kurt, but he has his head down on the booth, so I narrow my eyes and keep watching. Then I see it. I see it out of the corner of my eye as the man moves his fork toward his mouth. He's talking to the woman, and he looks like the same pompous a-hole I've been watching for the last hour. Truly. Then he moves the fork and a piece of pasta falls off. It hits his lip and smears cheese down his perfect clefted chin. He tries to act cool, but for a split second, like a flash of light, I see what he's hiding. That moment, getting someone to watch and see beyond what we project from ourselves onto others and see their insecurities changed my life. Wow. We've talked before about how I'm a do first and stress over it later kind of person.
0: Yes, and I am the over-cautious, overthinking, take forever to
1: actually make it happen person. Uh-huh. That moment in that book was the turning point for me. Oh wow. Because when I learned to look at the world through that lens of not my own insecurity, but of seeing their insecurity and the way they tried to cover it up, the same way I try to cover up mine was the first time in my life that I went, holy cow, we're all human, which sounds like such a dumb realization to have. No. And yet it hit home in a way that nothing else ever had. Mm. Because when we see, I I actually did an experiment after I, I read that section of the book. It was so profound. It hit me in exactly that spot that I went to a coffee shop and I sat and I watched people and I saw that moment with every single one of them. Wow. And I went, we are all actors on a stage. Mm. I get it now. And it changed my life. It completely changed my approach to everything that I do. And that's where
0: that confidence came from, to like plow ahead and just forge your own path and make it
1: happen. I also love, there are also some fantastic literary moments in this book. There is a dad who's a former military guy who's very regimented, the ultimate rule follower. And at one point, because Troy being a fat mess of a kid is like the opposite of what we're supposed to be. He and his father have a very rough relationship. But a big part of the book is them finding some common ground. Mm -hmm. And eventually at the end of the book, the dad comes around and decides to help them break Kurt out of the hospital. However, because his dad is such a rule follower, Even though they're sneaking Kurt out of the hospital in a way that would technically be considered him kidnapping this kid, he insists that Kurt ride in the wheelchair until they get out front because that's the hospital rule. (laughs) So forever and always, that was my model. Like when you ask, how do I craft my characters? I think about that that we have a character who is so fundamentally determined to follow the rules that even when kidnapping a kid and breaking him out of the hospital, they're still going to make him ride in a wheelchair because that's the rule. That kind of complexity, that kind of depth paired with that idea that we're all actors on a stage. And that holds true for our characters in books as well gave me the first full understanding, the first glimpse into the layers and what goes into building the layers of a human being.
0: That is one of the things that I love about Adeline, that one of her coping mechanisms for being pulled into this other world with all these different expectations is that she has a dance background. And so she tries to tell herself, especially at moments where she feels judged and watched, that she's like, just put on a performance. It's just like putting on a performance. And that's what helps get her through those. Yeah. And you were like, why is she a dancer? Cut this out of your book. And I'm like, no, it's important. I'll bring it in sooner. And that's where
1: the writing craft comes in. Yeah. Because that's a whole separate layer is our ability to communicate that with our readers.
0: Exactly. But it was just funny because you're like, this just doesn't make any sense. Get rid of it. I'm like, no. okay, I get it. I got to make it more important. I got to bring it in a lot sooner. (laughs) So, yes, now you get the first hint of her having a dance background in the very first chapter. So there you go. Problem solved. And then also, just the irony of the fact that here you are with releasing book number three, and I am carefully making my way through book number one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, book number three was quite the adventure. Book number two, when they say book number two is harder to write than book number one, they are not kidding. Yeah. Book two was brutal. Book three, on the other hand, I went from concept to rough draft in 20 days. I went from concept to fully published in a month and 23 days, less than 60 days. From, oh, shnikes, I really need to write my next book, to happy book birthday, to standing by Stephanie (laughs) in, what, like 54 days, I guess?
0: That's what also blows me away on how quickly you did it, and I genuinely, genuinely love that book. So, okay, you know the book that is one of my all-time favorite books, and you loathe it. And That's okay. You can tell me why, but it's Pride and Prejudice. You can do your roll face, fine, whatever. No, I'm gonna tell you why I utterly and completely
1: love this book. <laughs> Suck it up. Okay. I will sit here with my I just bit a lemon face and, and try not to judge overtly, but no on the inside there's some hardcore judging happening.
0: Dude, come on. Lighten up. Okay. Trust your friend here. Mm, okay. Do you remember me once telling you that one of my all time favorite things in a book? or moments for a character, is when people underestimate them. And Uh then they prove to be the right stuff. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That is Lizzie Bennet. From the first moment when Mr. Darcy shows up and he insults her, and she kind of laughs it off because she's ahead of her time with her wit and her sarcasm, he underestimates her and dismisses her. And she proves out to be exactly what he wants and needs. I love the fact that she challenges him. And I also, in terms of writing, absolutely and positively love his horrible first proposal when he shows up, when she goes to visit Charlotte, who married Mr. Collins, and he finds out that she's there and he shows up and he's horrible with his proposal because it's all about him. It's all about how he he cannot suppress his feelings anymore. And it never even occurs to him that she would turn him down And he's like, I'm just going to have to admit that this is this is it. This is how I feel. And so I have to marry you. And she's just like, "Uh, no. And he's like, what? What? I don't understand. And what I particularly love about the writing in that scene is it really highlights how much that book does showing instead of telling. And so before the horrible proposal, he starts asking her questions about her family And every time he thinks like, oh, great, I can get her away from her horrible family that I'd never have to deal with, he moves closer to her in the scene. And then every time he's like, oh, I'm not going to be able to pull her away from her family, he backs further away from her. And there's this dance of him trying to figure out how he can maneuver the situation, if it would be workable in terms of her relations. And you just see him physically moving closer and further away from her in the scene. And so books like Pride and Prejudice, and I love Jane Austen in general, but there is a lot that goes on with showing. And even when I watch the movie versions, it amazes me how the actors can take a single line and convey so much emotion on their faces and the layers, the layers behind what they're actually saying, that you can't take what they say at face value. So there you go. But I also love that Lizzie puts her foot down and she's like, no, dude, you're a jerk. And Mr. Darcy's like, wait, what are you talking about? And he does change and he earns her affections, which I love. And I love the fact that at the end, when he proposes a second time, it's not about him. It's about her. And he says, you're too kind to trifle with me. If your feelings have not changed in the matter, then one word from you will silence me on this topic forever. Like, he's like, I will respect your feelings on this and I will leave. But his, he's concerned about her feelings at the end, not his. So there you go. I will forever love Pride
1: and Prejudice. Okay, I have to point out a really interesting perspective here. Okay. You love your book because of the many layers that are shown instead of told. Mm -hmm. I love my book because it explains those layers. (laughs) Oh, that's pretty cool. Think about that for a moment. You're talking about this dance and how it subtly reinforces. And I'm talking about a guy who for the first time sees that there are layers.
0: (laughs) Wow. Fun time. Okay, then.
1: So this segues into our next book, because as you know, the book that I am choosing to discuss tonight as the one that I hate is Pride and Prejudice. Oh, it hurts. I know.
0: I just want you to know that while I'm listening to you, I will have a look of non-judgment on my face, but know that I'm judging you.
1: That's fair. I can't argue with that. Okay. I fully respect your opinion. That's okay. In my case, there are three things that cause me to hate Pride and Prejudice. Go ahead. First of all, this one's a silly thing, but sometimes it's the silliest things that have some of the biggest impacts. Mm -hmm. And I will also come back around. I will explain which of these three things ultimately changed my life and my career and my perspective on the world.
0: Oh, my God. You have to keep it deep the whole way through. Okay, fine.
1: Literally, Pride and Prejudice changed my career choice.
0: Oh, my God. Okay. Talk to me.
1: Okay. So, first of all, when... I told you I've always been an avid reader. Uh When I was too young, I have no idea how old, but too young, I ended up with a copy of The Hound of the Baskervilles, Mm. Sherlock Holmes. Okay. And in chapter one, not only was there the storyline, but there was also a picture of the hound, which looked like this demon, and it terrified me. And I had nightmares for years.
0: Okay. So Sherlock Holmes is not for little children. Got it.
1: Right. And I love Sherlock Holmes now, but at the time it was a big no. It was just too much for my little brain to deal with. Okay. I mean, I literally did not sleep. My parents got to the point where my mom would like have to sit in my room and I was way too old for that. It messed me up. Okay. Okay. So I am already predisposed to despise English literature, British English literature. Okay. Got it. Just know that going in. Okay. So then I hit high school again avid reader, always getting in trouble for having a book in my lap, and I'm in English class, which logic would suggest should be a place that I would not get in trouble for reading, and yet my teacher assigned Pride and Prejudice. It was an immediate no for me for a whole bunch of reasons. Again, predisposed to despise British English literature. Been traumatized. Okay. Yes. So know that I had that going in. Second of all, when I didn't get interested in the story right away. Because remember, at the time, I mean, not that I'm a whole lot better now, but I've figured out a little bit, but especially at the time, (laughs) Fat Kid Rules the World hadn't even been published yet. So I still had no understanding that like there were layers. Mm -hmm. So I was only reading Pride and Prejudice at the most superficial level, which meant it felt like a lot of description that was really boring about nonsense that I didn't care about. Oh, So I would read my own book and every day my English teacher took it away from me and every day I got in trouble and eventually she started calling my parents and then came the day when I got sent to the office over it and finally it all blew up and the teacher sat down and she was like, you are reading the wrong book. You keep getting in trouble because you are reading the wrong book. Pride and Prejudice is the right book for you to read right now.
0: Well, that's going to make you hate the book.
1: Exactly. Raised every hackle I had at that point to this day. And I kind of hate to admit this. I don't think I ever finished the book. Wow, I think I put my foot down and just I had very little control over that. Like, you have to show up at school. You have to. But by golly, nobody could force me to consume those words. I challenge you to
0: read it as an Dulled and finished. I don't know that, but you know layers now,
1: and I've told you about all the showing that's involved. And but there's so much baggage associated with this book. Oh, so because of that book, I told you it changed my career path. Yes. So fast forward a few years, when I became an English teacher, I started out teaching little kids because I was committed wholeheartedly with every ounce of my being to never force a child to read the classic canon. When I became a middle school teacher, I focused on YA lit. I encouraged choice among my students. That was actually what led to me doing the research into writing workshops because Mm -hmm. I was already running reading workshops to allow as much autonomy and free choice among my students as possible. Mm -hmm. I had a very strict policy that I never, ever in my entire career as a teacher, never once did I force a kid to read a specific book. I absolutely forced kids to read, but I let them pick which book. Okay, so
0: on that note, I absolutely love that Pride and Prejudice gave you that experience where you could create such fantastic reading opportunities for your children, and that Pride and Prejudice could be the catalyst for creating an open-minded environment.
1: <laughs> well, and big picture, I mean, talk about the power of reading. Talk about the power of literature. Uh-huh. Never, never doubt that. Both positive and negative. Yes. I, these two books, one that I never even finished reading uh-huh, both completely changed the trajectory of my life.
0: Yes. okay. but do you understand the hand scene that like all romance writers go crazy over from the Kira Knightley version? I don't know the hand scene. Okay wait, I have to explain the hand <laughs> scene. So because it's back in the day, right, it's improper to be touching anybody like there is no like, oh, you're so funny and like touching their arm. And Mr. Darcy has been suppressing his feelings this whole time. And she turned down his proposal. And then she shows up at his mansion for a tour because her aunt or cousin, I don't remember who she was with, but she was on tour with them. And they were like, oh, let's stop by the fancy mansion. And oh, by the way, it belongs to Mr. Darcy. And she's like, oh, my God. And I'm like, oh, don't worry. He's not home. She's like, "Okay, fine. Great. I can see it. But then it turns out he's home and he gives her a tour. He proves to be like such a gentleman. She's like, who is this guy? Like, I don't know what's going on with him. I just insulted him and turned down his proposal to his face and called him a schmuck. And he's really being gentlemanly. So I don't get it. And as he is leaving with her, escorting them to the carriage, He holds her hand to help her up into the carriage. And it's the first time that they ever touch. And all you see is he lets go of her hand and he walks away. And as he walks away, you just see him flex his hand. And that's it. Just like, I I touched her. And it's just this powerful moment where you're like, all the feels, all the feels that he's got to hold her hand. It is such an amazing moment. Search for the memes of like Darcy's hand and you'll just see people being like, oh, oh.
1: I really feel like you and I have very different definitions of powerful moments.
0: Because they are in such a confined space, right? So that moment takes on so much more meaning because they are in a confined space and a confined society and a confined view, whatever. Okay. See,
1: I never figured out how to follow the rules of society to start with. So it just, I I hear that and I'm like, so you're telling me the dude is a moron and the girl can't figure out how to reach out and touch somebody?
0: Well, no, because there's no circumstances where he
1: would have held her
0: or touched her. (laughs) She's not the moron. He helped her up into the carrot. Okay, fine. Stop. Move on.
1: I give up. I'm done with you. I love you. Uh, If you need me to come up with another one, I could, but it's hard because most books I love, at least on some level. uh okay, Beowulf, I hated. It was okay. I hated it. I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. Canterbury Tales, I enjoyed pieces of it. Pieces. I 100% agree with you on that one. Pieces. Yeah. There have been several modern KU romance novels that I have DNF'd. But it's typically because of really bad writing abilities, mm. not because of the story, but because they don't understand the difference between show and tell, because they didn't bother with an editor. Because there are too many grammar errors and typos for me to get through the book. That is painful.
0: So can I can I share the book that I hate? Sure. Because it was one of the books you mentioned that's one of your favorites.
1: Oh no. Oh okay. but on the other foot. Okay. How are we friends?
0: That's because that's what makes the world a beautiful place, that we are allowed to have different opinions,
1: but respect those different opinions and have conversations. I fully respect that you love Pride and Prejudice.
0: I tolerate that you don't like it because of, <laughs> because of what was done to you and not because of the book itself. This is a fair point. There you go. Okay, the book that I loathe is
1: Lord of the Flies. You said it was one of your favorites. OK, it wasn't one of my top 100 favorites, but you it was have like it. one of my top. But I do have it. Oh, you I have show- it
0: on the shelf behind you that says something. I would burn that book if it was in front of me. I'm so sorry. I'm not a <laughs> book burner. I'm, I'm not a book burner. OK, <laughs> so, of course, I had to read it for school. And there are plenty of books that I had to read for school that I absolutely loved. Like Fahrenheit 451 loved that book. That was one of the books that got me to fall in love with literature. But Lord of the Flies frustrated and angered me. And I don't even remember the book perfectly well by any means, but I remember how utterly horrified I was what happened to Piggy. I know that kids are vicious, but the fact that they could become that horrible and inhumane and lost to all reason, and I know that it is... What's the word I'm looking for? Satire. Oh yes, right. Okay, fine. Yes. And it's a satire. (laughs) Just I don't know what an analogy. No, I think it was a word. Yes. Analogy or allegory, I got you. Thank you. Yes. That is the word I was looking for for how we as a society can be i get that but just to see it with children and just how vicious they got and i was the fat kid so of course i was horrified at what happened to piggy and the lack of communication and like i can't stand books where the whole crux of the problem is that the characters can't just talk to each other and resolve the matter Like miscommunication drives me insane so, like, the fact that these kids could not be reasoned with, which, okay, they're kids, I get it, like, but I still reason with my seven-year-old, you know, like, he has his moments, but of course I can still reason with him, talk to him, and help him to not be a raving lunatic running around with pitchforks and,
1: and spears and killing kids. Like, oh, I'm sorry, I hate that book. It's really funny that you you say that because I definitely read that book, again, before reading Fat Kid Rules the World, before really understanding the layers of humanity. Right. And so I definitely read it from a third-person, omniscient perspective as a reader. Okay. Where I saw that everything was going on, I inserted myself into the story and as I read, I imagined how if I had been there, I could have fixed it all. Mm. Because I would have taken charge. I love it. This <laughs> might this might relate to the crux of my life: <laughs> issues with human interaction. <laughs> I'm gonna get these kids to listen to each other. And I'm gonna. Oh no! No. I. I. No point in time did I have any expectation of them listening to each other. But I had 17 different plans for how they were going to lessen to me and I was going to beat them into submission and make them do what I said so that we could all survive and build a totally functional society there and it would all be okay because I would be in charge and that would fix everything. There you go. Oh, my God. I love it. Yeah, I really might be a little messed up. Okay, no, seriously,
0: how can you tolerate that book? I just, it's so depressing and
1: horrible and... See, but again, when you put yourself in it and no, you imagine yourself as the hero of the story. No, I just picture all of the kids killing me instead of Piggy. See, and that's the difference. Oh. It's all about how we – so, okay, Rosenblatt's theory of reader response. Oh, we're taking this up a notch. <laughs> Can't help it. I'm a nerd. <laughs> so Rosenblatt's theory of reader response is that we all bring our self into every book. Uh-huh. And that reading is ultimately a two-way street. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely an exchange between the reader and the words on the page. Mm-hmm. And so you brought something very different to Lord of the Flies than I did. Yes. Just like I brought something very different to Pride and Prejudice than what you did.
0: That's fascinating.
1: Which means that we experienced completely different books, even though we were ultimately reading the same words. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, to be fair, you weren't actually reading Pride and Prejudice, so you didn't really read the same words. But, you know, that's technical. I mean, I read,
1: I read some of it. I read bits and pieces now the and then. The first
0: line is brilliant. Okay. She's being sarcastic in the first. You are the queen of sarcasm. Actually, no, Michelle Summers with her book coming out in April, she is the queen of sarcasm.
1: This is true. Nobody holds a candle to her. Yes. Yeah, I don't remember the first, but I was so disgruntled about the whole thing. I know. You don't remember the first line? No.
0: It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Of course they're looking for wives.
1: Was he sarcastic from the first sentence? I never got the sarcasm in it.
0: Yeah, read it now.
1: I just thought it was very pompous and very like, yeah.
0: Nope, totally sarcastic. She was a woman out of time, ahead of her time.
1: Can I share one more? It's not a book, though. Okay, go ahead. Jonathan Swift's Modest Proposal. It was published in 1729 Mm -hmm. to show you that I am capable of reading things not written in the 20th or 21st century. (laughs) I didn't doubt that, but okay. But seriously, if you have not read Jonathan Swift's Modest Proposal, it's free through Gutenberg Press. Like, it's old enough. There's no copyright anymore. Yeah, yeah. For the love of words, go read it. He will convince you that we should eat babies. Oh, you remember
0: you telling me that? The creepy one. Yeah, that's talk about a satire.
1: It's not creepy at all. It is satire. Yes. There's nothing creepy about it. It is the perfect model and example of satire. And you will be like, yes, we should eat babies. (laughs) This is
0: terrible. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, I already know what other books that I would mention in the future, just based on this conversation.
1: I'm hearing that we should repeat this. Like, I don't know, monthly, every couple of months. But we we should repeat this conversation numerous times with where we choose different books. And yeah, maybe going forward, we do set criteria, like the language of what book had the greatest impact on you as a writer.
0: Or like characters or plots Favorite. that really surprised us. But I'd also love to do one like movies because it's writing, right? All forms of writing.
1: My problem is I don't watch that many movies. So Ugh. that's really hard for me.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me and drinking wine in front of me when I don't have access to wine at the moment. So, you know.
1: Hey, you have DoorDash. I don't. That's true. You could totally DoorDash wine. I'm just saying.
0: Well, on that note, we will chat next time with some sort of parameters.
1: You choose. You choose the parameters. (laughs) okay
0: peace out have a good one thanks for tuning in to another episode looking for a community of passionate writers who understand your goals and struggles join my exclusive facebook group parents who write where you can join weekly group writing sessions and find writing prompts writing resources and free weekly tutorials click the link in the show notes to join the community today